0: at this time acknowledge my thanks to Colonel Findell of the, uh, who was the liaison officer for civil defense First Army. It was through his courtesy that today's speaker was made available to us so that it gives me a great deal of pleasure to introduce to you this afternoon's speaker. He is the executive officer of the Surgeon's Office Headquarters, First Army. And his subject will be the medical aspects of atomic explosion. The Speaker was a member of the first group entering Hiroshima and Nagasaki and witnessed the effects of the bombings of those two cities. In addition to his personal experience, he has attended special courses in Washington, D.C. on this subject. So that it gives me a great deal of pleasure to introduce to you Colonel Elliot Erson of the United States Army. Colonel Erson.
1: Thank you very much. I'm very happy to have this opportunity to appear before you this afternoon. We feel that it is a very important subject. And now that we are so concerned with civil defense activities, it is all the more important that all of us obtain an understanding of what the atomic bomb is. From my standpoint, medical standpoint, we are very interested in, and most concerned that the general public obtain an understanding of what type of casualties or what type of damage to individuals, you and, and, uh, and I, uh, might suffer as a result of this type of bomb explosion. Unfortunately, there has been a great deal of misunderstanding and a great deal of uh, misinformation, shall I say, been put out by the press on this subject. I think if you go out in the street and speak to the average person, they associate the atomic bomb with something that is new and something that is unknown. To some measure, this is true. However, the fact remains that the greatest danger from the atomic bomb is similar to the danger of any type of bomb. The big difference is that one bomb within a matter of just a few seconds, can lay waste a large city. In conventional bombing, the type of bombs we had before the atomic bomb, it would take large numbers of bombs to wreak the destruction that is done by one single atomic bomb. One of these bombs can lay waste the heart of one of our average cities. I'm speaking now of a city, say, of 250,000 population. In the two Japanese cities that were attacked with this bomb, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, over 100,000 people were killed. Nearly as many were injured. Now, the area of damage that this bomb can do and the number and kind of casualties that this bomb can inflict and the extent of the contamination that results from this uh, bomb depends on several factors. First, it depends on how powerful that bomb is. Secondly, it depends on how that bomb is used, whether it it is detonated high in the air or whether it is low toward the ground. It also depends on whether the day, the particular day in which the bomb is used, is a clear day or a stormy day. And then whether the bomb is dropped into a river or a harbor, giving us uh, an, an explosion in water. Now, in my talk today, we are going to interpret the uh, data of the Japanese bombings. The reason for this is that that is about all we have to go on. You have read in the newspapers, and we know that the bomb has been improved upon. No doubt the bombs that are now being made are uh, more efficient than the bomb that was used uh, in Japan. Now consider that the bomb that was used in Japan was equivalent to 20,000 tons of TNT. 20,000 tons. It was exploded at 2,000 feet above the surface of the ground. It was exploded at this level because that is the level in which we obtain the greatest amount of destruction as a result of detonation of this bomb. I want to also point out that the meteorological conditions were, were good. The bomb was detonated on a clear day. I'd like to say something now about the power of the bomb. It produces total destruction of most buildings and serious damage to buildings that are made of concrete or of steel construction. In Hiroshima, the only buildings that stood near the center of the explosion were this type of buildings, which were equal to any of our buildings as far as sturdiness in construction. They were built to withstand earthquakes and, of course, fire. Only the hulls, only the, uh, the outlines or the uh, shells of these buildings remain. Death and injury to people resulted within two miles from the ground zero. Now, by ground zero, I mean that point on the ground just below the uh, uh, bomb burst. The extreme limit of damage uh, bu- uh, due to the bomb extended out to about four miles. Now, consider that great increases in explosive force is necessary to accomplish relatively small increases in the area of damage. So for plan- planning pur- purposes, I feel that we are safe in, uh, in basing uh, our uh, plans on the effects produced over in Japan. Now, how may this bomb be used? There are three different ways. We had the high air burst, which was used in Japan. In that type of burst, there is no dangerous amount of contamination of the ground. Now, that is one point I think that, that deserves to be stressed. After a high air burst, it is perfectly safe for individuals on the ground to immediately, to go into the area, to begin firefighting, and to begin uh, work with casualty evacuation. I think you will find that a good portion of our general public feel that in any type of atomic explosion, that the thing to do is to get away. Therefore, it is up to us to do some good, to put out some good propaganda about that because the more we can make people understand that this is not the fact, the less apt we are to have uh, panic, which is, as you all know, members of the police force, one of the dangers in a situation such as this. A high air burst, of course, produces the greatest amount of destruction and also the greatest number of casualties because the effect of that burst is extended over a much larger area of ground. We have the low-altitude burst. Naturally, in this type of burst, we have much more uh, destruction in a smaller uh, area of ground. Here, we will have more danger from contamination because you will have the fission products uh, present in the uh, area directly uh, under where the bomb burst. The third type of burst is the underwater burst. This might cause a serious contamination. However, this again depends on several factors. It depends on where it is exploded, what the depth of the water or the soft mud is at the bottom of that water, the direction and the force of the wind. In Bikini, where they uh, experimented with the underwater burst. They had what is called the base surge, which consists of a, of a, a, a mighty surge of, of uh, water in the air, which, of course, is uh, contaminated and a very dangerous thing. If a bomb like this were dropped in the harbor, there would naturally be a great deal of damage in the harbor area but the damage from the blast would be lessened because it would be absorbed by the water. If the wind were right, a great deal of this mist would be blown upon the neighboring area, and as I pointed out previously, would be a source of danger. Now let's consider the effects on people. Much has been said about the dangers from nuclear radiation due to this bomb explosion. But let me tell you this, and again to stress this, that the greatest amount, the greatest number of casualties produced by this bomb is due to mechanical effects, the same type of casualties that we have due to any type of bomb. However, we do have the added feature of danger from radiation. Now, the mechanical injuries are suffered in the collapse of buildings, and as I have pointed out, predominate in both types of explosion, whether it be atomic or our conventional bomb. The main differences are that in the atomic bomb, we have much greater amount of thermal heat. We also have a large amount of light including the ultraviolet light as a result of the explosion and we have large amounts of nuclear radiations there are four general categories of injuries as a result of the atomic bomb burst one category is that due to blast pressure wave directly the second those caused by wrecked buildings individuals who are in buildings or near buildings where the debris fall over them. Then we have our burns, the category due to burns. Now this may be due to burns in the wreckage or due to the radiant heat, the tremendous amount of heat put out by this explosion. And then the fourth and the last category, the injuries due to the nuclear radiation, which may be Direct, that is, as a direct result of the bomb burst or as a result of contamination, residual contamination, as we call it. Now, in Japan, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 15 to 20 percent of the deaths were due solely to the nuclear radiation. You'll note, then, that only the smaller proportion of the deaths were due to this cause. The remaining 80 to 85% were due to injuries that were suffered in the collapse of buildings, to burns, and of course, to a combination of all of these factors. You will understand that in your your central zone, in the area nearest to your uh, zero point, you had all of these factors contributing to the death of individuals. If a man were not killed due to wreckage falling on him, he had gotten enough radiation to kill him and vice versa. So it is almost impossible to tell how many of those deaths were due to radiation alone, how many were due to other causes. Now, radiant heat, that is the heat caused by the explosion, causes third degree burns to a distance of about 1,500 yards. Now let me explain to you about the various degrees of burns. In medical terms, your first degree burn is that very slight burn, which causes just a reddening of the skin. If you go out and get sunburn, that is a first degree burn. A second degree burn is one that causes blistering. It's a little deeper, affects more of the tissue, the skin, deeper layers. A third degree burn, which is the worst, affects all of the layers of the skin. It's a much deeper burn. And I was speaking here of third degree burns due to the radiant heat from the bomb. These burns extended to, be, to out to 1,500 yards. The second degree burns were experienced out as far as 2,500 yards. Now the nuclear radiation as a result of the bomb explosion is something that lasts just a very few seconds. Thing is over within 60 seconds, one minute. However, the greater part, the most dangerous intensity of this nuclear radiation occurs just within the first few seconds. This extends out to an area or a radius of about one and one fourth miles. Let us consider the first category that I gave you the air blast effects. Now, the direct effects due to this bomb were surprisingly few. There were just a few broken eardrums, very little else as a result of the direct blast. In an underwater explosion, the situation would be quite different because if a person happened to be in the water near an explosion, underground explosion, uh dangerous injury might result out to a distance of 2,000 yards radius. Now the indirect effects of the air blast are much more important. Here we had the injuries due to the collapse of buildings, due to missiles, the effect of the debris being thrown around, the crushing injuries, the fractures, the lacerations and the bruises, injuries like that. Injuries that would result from any type of explosion. One of the very common uh, causes of casualties we saw in Japan were those due to flying glass, because they had a lot of glass in their buildings. Now, the injuries due to heat and light, I'd like to say something about them. First of all, the flash burns. Now, the effect of the visible light, even on individuals who, who looked at the explosion, uh, was not great. As the visual purple in the eye uh, was temporarily uh, put out of commission in a good number of cases, rend- rendering individuals temporarily blind. But this was just a temporary effect. However, the burns were the important things. We had all degrees, the severities, of these burns, as in all burns, depended on the degree and the area burned. Now these burns differed, to some extent, from the uh, burns that we get from conventional causes, such as explosions. Instead of being a burn all around the arm or around the entire body, you would have the the shadow effect, that is, uh, just that portion of the body directly exposed to this explosion was burned. If a man were standing like this, and the burn came from this, uh, this, from this uh, direction, the area behind the ear would not be burned because it was protected by the ear. Those individuals wearing clothing were protected if that clothing were light in color and if it were loose. Women who were carrying their uh, babies on their backs, which is a common custom in Japan, uh, showed on their skin burns due to the straps that were uh, tightly uh, on the body due to the weight being carried. Striped clothing would leave a, a pattern, a stripe pattern, a burn. As you all know, white or light-colored clothing reflects the light. Then we had the flame burns, trapped people who burned to death in the wreckage. Fires were caused by this radiant heat, that is, uh, combustible things nearby, the explosion, just, just caught fire due to the intense heat which uh, approaches that of the heat within the sun. And then we had a large number over there of, uh, of secondary fires due to overturned stoves, to broken gas mains. Uh, overturned furnaces and so forth. I might point out that 70% of Hiroshima's firefighting apparatus was knocked out and their firemen killed. Their water supply was disrupted. There was no water available to fight the fire. The streets were clogged. A firestorm came up. When the explosion occurred, there was a rush of air from all sides through sort of the center and up. And, of course, that was just uh, that helped to spread the fires. And when those fires started, well, we had what we call the fire winds. In Japan too, there was no medical care. A large proportion of the doctors and other medical uh, personnel were killed. A large proportion, practically all in fact, of the hospitalization facilities were destroyed. Everyone, they didn't know what had struck them. Their first thought was to get out. People who were in and who could have been saved, who were trapped in dwellings, were left there and naturally died. One, one must expect in any atomic explosion, for planning purposes, we, in order to be realistic, some forty to 50,000 severely burned persons as a result of a single atomic explosion. Now, this poses a problem. I think many of you remember some years the Coconut Grove fire up in Boston. They had some 490-odd burn cases as a result of that tragedy. This number severely taxed the facilities in Boston, which is one of our medical centers. Frantic calls went out for supplies in order to take care of these people. Just think what would happen if the atomic... an atomic bomb struck Boston and they had 40,000 casualties instead of 490. For ideal treatment of one burn case there is needed about 40 odd tanks of oxygen, about three, about two and one and seven tenths miles of gauze. It takes about three nurses to take care of such an individual around the clock. It takes 36 pints of plasma 40 pints of whole blood and 100 pints of other fluids, not to say anything about the antibiotics and other drugs necessary to treat this type of casualty. It is obvious that in a catastrophe such as this, we would not have supplies of this, uh, of, uh, supplies to this, in, in these amounts to take care of all people. That is why work is now going on to uh, improve uh, uh, methods in burn in care of burns fortunately in any atomic explosion the first problem will be to care of the uh, to take care of the burn casualties and those casualties due to the mechanical effects those due to the radiation do not show up immediately unless they have had overwhelming dosages of radiation So we have a little uh, respite there before we have to turn our attention to those cases. So first, the first problem will be to take care of the burn cases and those due to the mechanical effects. Then in about a week, 10 days later, we'll start getting the patients who have had large doses of radiation. If they've had overwhelming dose, of course, they will have immediate symptoms and many will die within the first few hours or the first day or two. Now, I have talked about the mechanical, the injuries due to the mechanical, due to the radiant heat and the burns. Now, I'd like to say something about the radiation hazard of this bomb. For, this, for the purpose of this lecture, we need concern ourselves only with the neutrons and the gamma rays, which I believe have been explained to you. These are the uh, two types of radiations that Uh, cause direct injury. They cause the same type of injury and they penetrate deeply. Injury is caused by ionization of the atoms that make up the various uh, uh, ingredients of the cells of the body. Radiation cannot ordinarily be detected by the senses. We might be, it's conceivable that that uh, not only conceivable, but one exposed to radiation might not even know that he had been exposed. The syndrome or the group of symptoms that result as the uh, uh, after exposure to radiation is called the acute radiation illness. I would like to mention a few of these symptoms. First, the severity of these symptoms is related to the amount of radiation that an individual has, uh, has uh, gotten in one single dose. It also depends on how much of the body is exposed to this radiation. As you know, we use radiation for medical treatment, and we use large amounts, but it's placed on a very small portion of the body in order to get the effect where we want it. Now, 500 Rehnkens over the whole body area is probably fatal. 400 Rehnkens is what we call the median lethal dose. If a group of individuals receives 400 Rehnkens over the entire body, about half of them will die. 200 Rehnkens, or half of that, would cause uh, radiation illness. Now no two organs of the body respond alike or suffer the same amount of injury or damage due to radiation. Lymphoid tissue, our bone marrow, the sex organs, the lining of the small intestines are, are more vulnerable and they suffer heavy damage. The muscle tissue, nerves, uh, bone is not, are not so easily damaged. Unless radiation is heavy, the symptoms are delayed. As I said before, if they're heavy, death results very soon. The illness is in four phases. During phase one, which comes on very soon after exposure, individual might feel a little nauseated, might vomit, and he feels weak, tired. And then comes phase two, which is a period in which there is no symptoms to speak of, except that the individual feels pretty well equipped. Tired. Then comes a phase three, which is a critical period. We have great apathy or tiredness, fever. The heart heart action increases. There is loss of weight. There may be nausea and vomiting. A diarrhea, often a bloody diarrhea. Hemorrhages appear in the mouth, the mucous membranes, the nose and the throat. And you have hemorrhages in the skin. The hair falls out. As I say, this is a critical period, and this is a period when medical treatment is very important. Those who survive that period then go into a convalescent phase, phase four which is a very lengthy affair. Fatigue remains, but there is gradual improvement so that by six months, most of the patients have uh, recovered to all intents and purposes. Individuals who are suffering from some illness such as tuberculosis or some uh, chronic infection, of course, are hard hit because the, uh, the elements in the body, in the blood that, that help fight disease are seriously damaged by radiation. And so the body is left without its defenses. The treatment for these cases is first of all, good nursing care. Whole blood is very important. And that is why in the civil defense, you hear so much said about the importance of making arrangements to have blood available. Control of infection by the use of penicillin and other antibiotics. Intravenous feeding where, you cannot take, where one cannot take food by mouth and then control of, of uh, bleeding. The injury zones, just hurriedly review that, in the first half-mile radius, that's a half-mile radius outside of the, uh, uh, of the uh, zero point where the burst is. In the first half-mile radius, you have practically complete destruction of all structures, except those uh, built of concrete, heavy concrete, and reinforced with steel. Uh, About 70% of these are destroyed, or just the uh, shells are left remaining. All persons who are not protected will be killed. By protection, I mean if they're down the ground or back of heavy walls that stand. Flash burns are fatal to all of those who are exposed. And of course, these, this also starts fire, so we have a great fire problem. The ionizing radiation as a result of a bomb would kill all people except those who are protected. The film that I am to show you will, show, will uh, uh, go into more detail as to uh, protection against this type of uh, radiation. Now, from the uh, one-half to one-mile zone from the uh, zero point, we'll have general structural damage, except in the case of fire and shock-resistant buildings. We will have casualty from the flame burns and from blast effects, and here again due to the falling debris and flying glass. We have second- and third-degree flash burns and injury from the ionizing radiation would be also serious in this area. A little further out, from one to one and a half miles, the blast damage is extensive to residential buildings. The fire damage is also extensive. Flash burns also apply here. Your secondary injuries are prominent. Your radiation is prominent out to one and a quarter miles from the, uh, from the, uh, central point. From one and a half to two miles, the average limit of heavy structural damage being around two miles, you can see that it would gradually uh, disappear in this area. There would still be fire damage and the flash burns would not be uh, severe. Over two miles, the structural damage is appreciably lessened. The injuries also decrease correspondingly. The radiation and flash burns in this area are insignificant. Just a few words about radiological contamination. Now, residual radioactivity, that's after a ground or underwater burst, can be detected and measured by teams, specially trained personnel with certain types of instruments. One of them is called the Geiger counters and similar devices. There are three sources of this type of contamination. You have your fission products. That's the the products due to the explosion itself. Then you have unfissioned uranium or plutonium, the elements of which the bomb is made, and then materials that are made radioactive by virtue of the uh, the, um, uh, the radiation from the explosion. You have here your alpha, beta, and gamma rays concern. Now, internal radiation can result from either ingesting or eating contamin- uh, some of these uh, elements that are contaminated through breathing them or through the wound. But in considering these things, we must remember that it depends here on the chemical characteristic of the radioactive element. This determines where that particular element is, is uh, deposited in the body. We must also consider the solubility of the body fluids in other words, these these uh, radioactive materials must gain access to the circulating blood. Some of them can be eaten, but they wouldn't be absorbed and come into the bloodstream. And it also depends on what we call the biological half-life of the uh, a particular element concerned—how fast, how how long-acting it is. Now, the plutonium hazard is negligible. One would have to swallow the surface contamination of quite an area of earth, the surface of the earth, in order to get enough uh, to uh, uh, injury one. The questions have been brought up about drinking water contamination. Well, remember that these fission products are, they get in the air and they're, and they're scattered out downwind and they're, uh, they don't fall in any heavy dilution. You also have dilution of the water The distance of the water supply from the cities enters into it. There's a tendency of these particles to adhere to organic material along the way, so by the time the water (coughs) gets to the consumer, there is not too great a danger. However, it must be taken into consideration. In inhaling the dust, radioactive dust, the size of the particle is important. The nose filters out about 95% of particles that are over 5 microns. In size, and most of the small particles ascend and burst. And if uh, with the burst, and if they settle, they attach themselves to uh, to uh, larger particles. Our uh, ordinary combat mask that we use in the army is considered to be about 99.99% effective in filtering out these particles. The contamination of wounds is not considered particularly significant. Wounds should be given the routine care that we always give them: thorough cleansing. And protection of the wound is is considered to be uh, sufficient in these type of cases, too. I realize now that I have, and I'm sure you appreciate it, I have skipped a number of things in my dissertation here. You will find, too, that some of the things are mentioned in the uh, film that I'm about to show you. You can go ahead and get things ready for the film. However, uh, any of you who have had experience in teaching know that repetition is one of the uh, principles of good pedagogy. The film that I am to show you is one that has been prepared by the Army. It is called Medical Effects, Atomic Explosion. This film is in three parts, and I am going to show you this afternoon, part one, which is coming on now which deals with something about the physics and something about the casualty effects of this bomb. Then after the break, I want to show you a film that has been prepared, giving some idea of the problem of civil defense. I think you will find it interesting. Some of you may not agree with everything that is included in this film. However, it is a basis to start thinking from. And I will say a few words about that film before we show it. As I say, when we're finished with this first film, we'll have a break. I'm sure that you'll all be ready for it. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Some weeks ago, I had the pleasure of attending a session of conferences at the uh, New York Academy of Medicine. They had a number of speakers for the evening, and uh, some of these speakers took a little more than their allotted time. The result was that when the officer, the medical officer from Washington, that had been asked to speak on medical aspects of atomic explosion came up for his turn. The audience was quite tired and just a little bit sleepy. There were several very dignified gentlemen sitting alongside of the speaker's stand. And this gen- and the speaker, the colonel, got up and began speaking. Suddenly he slumped over the Rostrum like this, and was absolutely silent. And he seemed to sag a little bit. These men sitting here, of course, looked at him with alarm and started to get up. They were afraid that he might be having a heart attack or something. The audience, which has be- had been a little sleepy, quickly awakened, and everyone sat just on the edge of their seats, just waiting to see what was going on. And the speaker just something like this, and suddenly he came to life like that where everyone just jumped. His purpose was to bring home to everyone the suddenness with which a disaster like this could strike in any city, the suddenness whereby roughly half of a heretofore healthy population could be killed, and another large number seriously injured. The suddenness with which the survivors would find themselves up against a task of giving first aid and of evacuating casualties to places of safety, the suddenness with which the medical profession might find itself faced with an ins- Surmountable task of giving adequate medical service as we know it to such a large number of casualties. That is the reason why very detailed and careful planning is most important. We all hope that the occasion will never come where we'll, we'll have to put these plans into effect, but nevertheless. It is important that we do have plans, and not only plans on paper, but plans that can be put into effect. The problem before us is one of many facets. Although I speak here of the medical aspect of the problem, you know and I know that there are many, many other problems. First of all, there will be your problem of maintaining law and order and control of the population. The firefighters will have a problem. There will be the necessity for clearing out the streets so that we can get the casualties moved out. Personnel will have to be trained to give first aid because there will not be enough trained personnel from the resources we now have. Plans must be made to have adequate amounts of medical supplies, including whole blood. These must be put somewhere where they can be readily available. There must be, must be arrangements made for help, uh, self-help, and also arrangements for help from other communities should one community be hit. Most of you had know something about the army. <clears throat> you know what our medical organization is in the Army. We have enlisted men, the combat medical men who are right out in the front with our combat soldiers. They are trained men, men trained to give first aid and to help in evacuation of soldiers. Much depends on them in our life-saving program because if, not help, if help is not available immediately, a life may be lost. Then we have our litter men that carry those patients back to the first aid station, which is up near the front. That is where we have a doctor or two with more enlisted men to assist him. From there, we evacuate the patients back to what we call a clearing station. They're checked there some of them may be moved immediately back, others back to what we call our clearing station, where definitive, what we call definitive medical care can, we get, can be given. That is, we can do surgery there. And uh, we have usually mobile surgical hospitals uh, nearby where we can take care of the more serious injuries. From there, the patient is evacuated to army hospitals. That is, to our evacuation hospitals, field hospitals, or what have you. Those cases that cannot be taken care of there and that need a long period of convalescence or medical care are moved to hospitals in the communication zone or in the zone of interior. In civil defense, we must have a system somewhat similar to that. You must have a zoning, you you may have a block system where every block will have its own organization, but a city or a portion of a city must be set up in zones. There must be a control. People must know where they are to report in case of disaster. They must know what they are to do. They must know where medical supplies are. A city of 450,000 might expect, as I told you before, anywhere from fifty to 75,000 casualties as a result of one atomic bomb. A field army is just about the same population as a city as of this size. While in combat, we think we're doing a good job if we take care of about 1,500 casualties during a 24-hour period. But with an atomic bomb, you have all casualties, all at once. In order to take care of casualties, about 1,500 a day, we have quite a system, as I've explained, it's in different echelons uh, with which to take care of them. It takes around a couple thousand doctors and about 900 nurses and about 27,000 enlisted personnel to, to uh, uh, furnish medical support for such an army. And remember that these are individuals who are all trained. They've been previously trained and they know what to do and they know where to get their supplies from. This medical service could establish in necessity about 300 different medical installations with which to give medical service to this army. A city of 450,000 would ordinarily have about 700 doctors as against 2,000. In case an atomic bomb is dropped on this city, you can uh, take it for granted that a good proportion of them would be killed themselves. This would also hold true of nurses. A town of this size would have about 1,400 nurses as against our 900 in a a field army. A city of this population, 450,000 population, would normally have about 5,000 hospital beds available, and this is for 75,000 casualties. Obviously, plans must be made for certain types of buildings, schools, warehouses, armories, or what have you, to be, uh, plans must be made to, uh, so we can convert those buildings quickly into emergency hospitals. Plans must be made for other hospitals to uh, enlarge and to expand under emergency conditions. These are just a few highlights of the problems that, pres- that uh, uh, the medical profession must think of in civil defense planning. I have not mentioned many of the sanitary problems, which will be many and complex. I have not mentioned anything about the care of the dead or the supply of food and clothing for all the myriads of people that will have lost such uh, their homes and clothing. The picture is not as black as it might seem, because much can be done to protect individuals and populations against a bomb such as this. Remember in Japan, this bombing came as a complete surprise. It came in the morning hours. One plane was overhead. There had been an alert, but it had been uh, discontinued. No one expected a bomb and certainly no one expected the bomb such as the atomic bomb now we know there is such a thing and we know what can happen and that is why we are now so concerned with civil defense incidentally just to keep the record straight here when I was introduced the statement was made that I was one in the first group that got down to Hiroshima and Nagasaki that is not quite so I was in uh, were the first, one of the first groups to come into Japan before the surrender. I got down to Hiroshima Nagasaki well, about three weeks later. And I did have the opportunity to see the destruction that resulted from the atomic bomb. And I can tell you that it's, it's, it's something that is just impossible to describe. I had the opportunity to see the casualties that were still living in the hospital in Hiroshima. The hospital was one that had been damaged badly. However, it was still in use. I'd like to show you now part three of our film. As I told you, this is a series of three films, the medical effects of the atomic bomb. I have shown you part one which has to do with the physics, the physical destruction, and the casualty effects of the bomb. Part two is very technical and is of most interest to doctors, and I'm not showing that here. Part three I think you will find interesting in as much as it points up some of the civil defense problems and some of the things that can be done to meet this problem. As I said before... You may not agree with some of the things that are said. However, it gives us a basis from which to start. Now I want to thank you for your kind attention.